Let me welcome you all today. Uh, we're here with Kevin Twitt, who is um, instrumental in what we're understanding as this resurgence of him singing in the modern church. He's been involved since the very beginning with Indelible Grace and their recordings. Kevin has uh, served on the staff of the uh, Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, but is now per- full-time with Reform University Fellowship at the Belmont uh, University uh, campus. Um, he's been here before to lecture, and uh, we're just thrilled to have him speaking today and tomorrow. And then tomorrow night, the, the band, the touring band, will be here for a concert at 7.30. Tell your, all your friends about that. We'd love to have the place just filled up. Uh, let me open with a word of prayer, and then we'll set him loose. Oh, God, we are so thankful to you for life in Christ We're so thankful to you for the delight of poems and melodies and harmonies that help us to voice our faith, to understand our sin and to better cherish our Savior. So we thank you for Kevin and his ministry. We thank you for uh, the gift of his presence on campus with us today. And we pray that your spirit would direct our time in a way that would draw us to Christ and bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Kevin Twitter. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Can I move up or that? Is that all right? Yeah. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, last time I was here at the seminary, I didn't have nearly enough time to um, explore the bookstore or the library. Um, so I'm excited to have a little more time. We'll be here till Friday morning. Um, and I'm just thrilled to be here and thrilled to be able to, to talk about this. I haven't lectured on this. Oh, it's probably been at least a year. And... Um, who knows what the Lord uh, will allow, but this summer my plan is to start to try to turn some of this material into a book. I think the, the movement is at the point where we've demonstrated, you know, maybe some things about the kind of music we think you can do with hymns and why that's helpful with four CDs. And I think for the movement to mature, it would be good to maybe speak uh, some, some of these things that I've been thinking for a while in the form of a book um, and to get further dialogue going about this. Because that's really what I... What I'm interested in. Uh, I don't come from a place of saying, hey, we figured this out. Um, here it is. Here's what you should do. I, I really um, very much am aware that God has been stirring up people all over the country, even before um, we started getting on uh, onto this idea of old hymns and using new music with them. Um, there have been other people that were doing this. And one of the things in Double Grace and some of the publicity we've gotten from that has helped me connect with people who've kind of come out of the woodwork and say, man, I didn't know anybody else was doing this. I've been doing this for years. David Ward, you know, be a good example, um, who some of you may remember was here. Is he still here? No, no just left, right? Just finished. Um, so anyway, let, let me um, talk about the why behind the modern hymn movement. Um, and the first question, I guess, is there a movement? And I, from my perspective, there really is. This is what I mean. It's not just something that people are being in, in, uh, influenced by in double grace. I'm seeing multiple um, people all around the country that have developed similar ideas. seems that God has been stirring up people with this. I also see this in the broader context of our culture, a desire to connect with traditions more and more, especially among younger people. I uh, see that part of the uh, shift from modernism to postmodernism. If you ever read David Brooks' book, um, David Brooks' book, uh, Bobos in Paradise, which I highly recommend if you're going to minister uh, to the world we live in. It's very fascinating. Um, but I, I, one of the things that captures sort of what I've seen among my college students, because RUF is the Presbyterian Church in America's campus ministry, okay? Conservative, um, reformed group, 
um, ministering actually at a Baptist, Baptist school is what I do. And as I began to use some of the, these old hymns with new music, um, it's always interesting to see the reaction you get from students when they first get introduced to this idea. Now, it's interesting now, like I can, I can almost assume with a lot of my students that they know songs from our first CD. Um, which is really kind of interesting. I don't have to teach a lot of those songs. Even new freshmen coming in have, have heard, heard a lot of these songs. But in the early days, you know, somebody would walk into our RUF meeting and be handed a notebook of hymns and be like, whoa, what, what is this? Um, now, probably half the hymn tunes that we use in an RUF meeting are traditional hymn tunes. Um, we're not just out to deconstruct church music and try to rewrite everything. Um, but this girl, Lori, who actually is from Kentucky, um, came down to, to Nashville. We met her at the freshman move-in. Um, so she had no context for Reformed theology or RUF or even hymns. Um, and after she'd been hanging around RUF for a while, she uh, read this article on Relevant.com. I don't know if you know about Relevant magazine. It's popular with a lot of Christian college students. And so they had posted they had this article only in their online version that was about the story behind it as well with my soul. And at the end of the article, they allowed people to post comments. And I found this comment that she had posted. So that's why I like this quote, because I didn't ask her for this. This is something she was sharing with her peers. And so she says this about kind of some other people that said, you know, hymns. We can't lose the hymns. And she said, right on. And then she says, coming from a typical praise chorus reliant high school youth group, I sort of turned my nose up as I was handed a notebook of hymns at my first visit to RUF. I didn't understand a lot of the poetic and imagery-driven lyrics, and the word hymn automatically meant boring music. But as the weeks passed, I found myself falling in love with the old hymns and the idea of putting new and very beautiful music to them. The words are so profound and full of truth, one can't help but be broken. Singing hymns has seriously changed my life and freed me from feeling frustrated by surface lyrics that focus on how I feel about God, which is always changing, uh, hymns have allowed me to center my worship on the gospel, which in turn compels me to love the God I am prone to hate and wander from. Now, I really love the end of that quote because even the language of a hymn, Come Thou Fount, has entered into her vocabulary. Uh, she's actually learned uh, maybe a richer or wider way to explain what she finds in her heart. I'm not sure the songs that she sang in her high school youth group would help her understand that Christians sometimes hate God and are prone to wander from him. But it's there in the hymn tradition. And it's helped her actually be more real and more authentic in her worship instead of pretending that she has to sort of say to everybody around and to God, everything's wonderful, thank you. Um, now, there's an appropriate place for that, but it's not the whole story of the Christian life as a quick study of the Psalms will easily demonstrate so I see this going on with a lot of students. Her, her example could be multiplied time and time again. Um, there's some books that I think speak about this. Robert Weber's The Younger Evangelicals. Um, probably, I still think, one of the better books for understanding the way younger evangelicals are thinking about church and life and ministry and worship as opposed to the more, what he calls the pragmatic evangelicals, more associated with the seeker-driven churches and Willow Creek model. Uh, that's helpful. There's also David Brooks' book that I mentioned, Bobo's in Paradise. He's a Jewish writer, actually a columnist for the New York Times now. It's a very fascinating book about the way people like things like distressed furniture and kind of older things and why they're drawn to that in our culture. And I, I think that's really interesting uh, reading for you as well. And then a book called The New Faithful by Colleen Carroll. She's a 20-something Roman Catholic who writes about a movement among a lot of young people back to more orthodox forms, Greek Orthodoxy, Episcopalianism, 
and Roman Catholicism. All these are, are sort of getting at a similar phenomenon that they're seeing around the country. Weber, Weber says it well. He says this, I find three trends in the worship of the younger evangelical. They are, one, a reaction to entertainment worship. Two, a longing for an experience of God's presence. And three, a restoration of liturgical elements of worship. Those are, those are all pretty encouraging things to me. Um, I know, you know, I always find myself, I work with college students. And so when I was on the staff of a church, as well as working with college students, I would find in the church staff meetings and on the elders meetings, I'd be kind of the radical guy with all these kind of crazy ideas. But among my college students, I'm always the conservative guy saying, no, we couldn't possibly do that. Um, but I'm, I'm really encouraged by some of these, these things that are emerging with these younger, younger people, things that they really feel passionately about. And I think it's one of the reasons that the indelible grace movement has just taken off in ways we never would have predicted. We've probably sold close to 40,000 CDs at this point through word of mouth, without major distribution. And it's, I wish I could share with you some of the emails where people will order one CD and then a week later they'll order five or ten to give to their friends, not because they like the music, but because they're buying into the idea at the level of vision and something they think is an important movement. And, and it's really fascinating to me. People are resonating with this idea because it speaks, I think, to so many of the things that in our sort of modern um, reductionistic version of Christianity that I think has been practiced by a lot of evangelicals, they're, they're, people are saying, wait, we're missing so many things. And they're finding a lot of those things in the hymn tradition. Um, you know, the story of Indelible Grace, for myself, my own journey with this, I've always been interested, well, I wouldn't say always, I guess in my senior year in college, I got thrown into the position of teaching a Bible study. I went to a place, Berkeley College of Music, under, up in Boston for undergrad. And uh, my senior year, a couple of us had started a Bible study and the pastor who was helping us got transferred to another city. And so they all looked at me and said, well, you're getting ready to graduate and you're going to stick around for a year. I was going to work in the recording studios at the school there. So why don't you take over teaching the Bible study? And I was like, oh, OK, I guess I, I'll do that. But I don't know anything. I, I mean, I really have basically been kind of coasting along from what I learned in a parachurch ministry in high school and the four spiritual laws. I thought that was enough for me. Um, but now I felt like I was going to teach. I needed to dig into some of these questions I put on the back burner, things like predestination, all these other controversial topics. So I went to the local Christian bookstore uh, and I, I spent about three hours searching around for all of these uh, books just to find a couple books to read. OK, and so I, I, I found a Tozer book, a Watchman Nee book and a Spurgeon. No, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, kind of a variety of things. I didn't really have any direction whatsoever. But I, through the, through the, um, the uh, Knowing God in particular, I, was, I opened that one up and I was reading it flying back home after Christmas break. And there's, it, you know, if you remember that book, it starts with this wonderful quote from C.H. Spurgeon. And then you turn the page over and you find he was like 21, 20, maybe 20 when he wrote, said this. And I remember sitting there saying, oh my gosh, I'm 20 years old. I'm the same age Spurgeon, and I don't even know what he said, let alone <laughs> imagining myself thinking these kind of big thoughts about God. What, what have, what's been going on? It was soon after that that I started going to all these used bookstores up in Boston. In those days, it was a great place for used bookstores. And my shift at the school was six at night to four in the morning, supervising the studio. So I had lots of time to read and hang out. And I remember finding books like J.C. Ryle's Holiness, Robert Murray McShane's memoirs, and through some of these books being drawn to, to understand that Older Christians really have had some profound thoughts about the gospel, particularly about sanctification. It was much deeper than sort of the shallow kind of moralistic teaching that I had experienced. And so through that, I really began to be um, 
influenced by old books. I read an essay by C.S. Lewis called On the Reading of Old Books, where he suggested reading, I can't remember, was it one or two old books for every new book that you read? And, and, I, and I, again, I said, well, that seems like a good idea. I think I'm going to do that. And I kept finding all these great old books. Eventually, I found some old hymnals and, and started to, to gather them if I found one. And I remember years later reading through Dr. Rippon's collection, Good Baptist collection. And I kept finding it was, it was a little little hymnal, um, very, very old from the early 1800s. And it had just words and just the last name of the author. And so I kept running across these hymns with the name Steele attached to them, S-T-E-E-L-E. And I didn't know who Steele was, but I was, I was reading things like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I was thinking, oh, this is, this is amazing. Who would write a song like that today? Who would, who would speak things to God saying, my feigning hope, you know, on whom my feigning hope relies? Who would admit that they have a feigning hope or that they have a weary soul? Um, Thou lovely source of true delight. All these wonderful things. I was like, man. This is amazing. We need to sing some of these. I actually started Xeroxing off some of the words and I would give them to students when I was doing pastoral counseling. I would hand them, especially a hymn like I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow, which uh, John Newton wrote, which is a powerful text for helping orient um, Christians to the way God works. It's not just he's not this divine pharmacist or this divine. um, How's it? Francis Schaeffer says he's not uh, this mechanical God who you put in your effort and out comes this predictable response. And I was finding these older writers understood that so well. I was finding John Newton's letters to be really helpful. And from his letters, I went to his hymns because he was saying the same sorts of things. And I was working with all these musicians. And so they, the, the poetry was really speaking to them and to me in really powerful ways. Eventually, I did a series uh, in Sunday school on the gospel, community, and healing. And I remember looking at the the hymn book that we were using in our church at that time. I think it was Hymns for the Family of God. And they had Blessed Be the Tie That Binds and a couple modern choruses about fellowship. And then I looked at a 19th century Southern Presbyterian hymnal that I had. And it had about 15 rich hymns about community and gospel community. I was like, we've got to sing some of these. But I don't, I don't know how. There's no, there's no music uh, in this. But hey, you know what? This fits with Be Thou My Vision, so, so we can sing it. And I knew a couple tunes that I would sort of sing all these texts I wanted to sing to there. But eventually, um, I, you know, I, there were people like Scott Rowley, who had, has rewritten a tune for Encanet Bay, James Ward down Chattanooga, who had written Rock of Ages. So there were a couple examples that sort of gave me encouragement that, you know, it's not, it's not a sin to rewrite a hymn tune, especially a hymn text that nobody knows anymore anyway. Um, and so I was at a conference in North Carolina with Jack Miller, um, ministry called World Harvest um, or the Sonship Movement. And we started off that conference. He dug out the Trinity Hymnal, which is the hymnal we use in the Presbyterian Church, and uh, turned to Arise, My Soul, Arise. Let's sing Arise, My Soul, Arise. And we tried to sing it with the music in the hymnal, and it was like a funeral dirge. And yet the, the words, I mean, this tune actually kind of steps down, even though the, the lyrics say sort of just the opposite. And um, I, yet I read that text. I said, this seems to so capture what this conference, what this week is about, about resonating not just with the, the words of the gospel, but with the music of the gospel. Um, and, and so it, it, sort of during our free time the next afternoon, I just messed around with it a little bit and came up with a tune pretty quickly, sang it that night, showed it to everybody, said, what do you think of, of this? Maybe we should try that hymn again, sing it with this tune. And people loved it. Jack got up and he preached. And before he even finished his sermon, he got me up there to sing it again. Eventually, they sang it at his funeral, uh, which is very humbling uh, experience for me. But I, that was sort of the beginning and seeing the way people just grabbed hold of these things. There wasn't there wasn't another hymn that I or a modern song that I knew of that spoke the gospel 
like arise, my soul arise. And so through that, we started, you know, I had all these musicians around. I'd, like I said, I went to Berkeley College of Music, did recording engineering. So I'd worked in a recording studio before I went to seminary. And it seemed like we had a great opportunity um, to maybe make a little CD. Thought we'd just do a little guitar vocal, real simple sort of CD. And then all these people came out of the woodwork and said, hey, you can have my studio. Um, here's the keys. Just, just take it. And um, so all these people kept coming and we felt, well, if the Lord gives you a gift, you should be responsible and use it. Um, so we put out the CD. And seriously, in all, in all seriousness, I was hoping that we would recoup and sell the thousand CDs that we printed up so that we could recoup the costs of printing it up. And yet, I mean, it just blew through that. And it was all word of mouth. Um, really fascinating. And that's what sort of got me thinking about, well, why? Why is this resonating with so many people? Because this, I, it's not a very well-produced CD. It's not quali- you know, sound quality you know, very good. There's a lot of songs on there that we don't even do anymore. Um, but I think people were connecting with the idea and it was giving them a sense of roots and wings. I, I use a quote from a guy, Gerard Kelly, from a book called Retro Future, where he says, the challenge is to provide young people with roots and wings, to help them be rooted to the rich tradition, but also have wings, have freedom to add their own voice to it. And it seemed that that was what was going on. And so really these talks co- sort of come out of me wrestling with, well, why are my students, why are young people, and now older people as well, really resonating with this idea of setting old hymns to new music. Why are they going back and saying, we need these hymn texts? And so this is my, uh, my thought about this. Um, I really think a lot of younger evangelicals were really ready for a change. I ran across a sign in an antique store one time that said, my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. Yeah, maybe you've seen that little sign. It's great. I should have bought it. Uh, maybe I'll find it again uh, sometime. But that really, to me, described a, a lot of people's experiences with church music. Uh, a lot of younger people. You know, their grandparents loved the hymns, but their baby boomer parents had thrown out all of those old-fashioned things like hymns. Um, and, and, and yet the young people were saying, we really, we really miss that. We really need that. I mean, to hear my, my wife talk about standing next to her grandmother in church with the hymnal, singing hymns, and when you get to the last verse about heaven, which in, inevitably seems to in most hymns, just looking up at her grandmother as a little girl and seeing tears stream down her grandmother's cheek, there's a, a sense in which she wants to understand the faith of her grandmother. And, and what is it that enabled that generation to endure so many things? Um, th- there really was this, this kind of reaction against sort of baby boomers who had stripped a lot of the traditions out of the church. Um, so I, I think there was, we were ready in some ways, a lot of the young people. There was a growing longing for experiencing God. And here's the interesting thing. A lot of people, old and young, would never associate hymns with vital, vibrant Christian experience. I think sometimes it's because the music and the way we sing them is so lifeless. I think as well because maybe the grandparents didn't tell their children so much why they appreciated the hymns. And it became a tradition rather than sort of a passed on conviction. And here's why. And that happens all the time um, in, in various ways in the Christian church. But I think, you know, postmoderns are saying we need experience. And when they began to see some of these hymns, when they began to read a hymn like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, they said, wow, here's a lady who lived 250 years ago in a little English village who's experiencing God in the same way. That, that, you know, that there have been Christians who have wrestled with God, who've struggled with faith. And they weren't, they weren't hearing that from their parents in particular. 
but they were finding it in these hymn texts. When, when they sort of get set to new music, sometimes even traditional texts that they're familiar with, when you set them to new music, sometimes people can hear them afresh and realize, wow, and can it be? That's a wonderful hymn. Now, some people love the traditional tune. No problem. Uh, but for some people, they've grown so used to that that they don't even hear the words anymore. Uh, and, and yet, as you begin to read these hymn texts, you find here is some of the richest Christian experience we have. And it's the experience that resonates with ordinary Christian people. You know, often church history, like history, is written by the victors. It, you know, it's a history of sort of the major, you know, important people, important battles, all those sorts of things. But in the hymn tradition, you actually have a way of getting at the faith of ordinary Christians and, and, and the things that shaped them and, and resonated with them. So there was this longing for experience, and I think the hymns have provided a real doorway for that. For instance, Arise, My Soul Arise, Charles Wesley, um, even though it's dropped out of the Methodist hymnal, um, it's one of his best texts. I remember meeting a guy, Lester Ruth from Asbury. And, uh, your CD, yeah, Lester, Lester's helped spread this movement a lot. He's passed the CDs on to all kinds of people. Yeah, he's at Asbury. And when I ran into him, he said, where did you find Arise, My Soul Arise? I think that's one of Wesley's best texts, but we haven't had it in a, in a Methodist hymnal for years and years. And I said, well, it's still in the Presbyterian hymnal. They valued it. They, they've held on to it, but we sing it with a dreadful tune, so we don't sing it very much. Um, but it's actually a communion hymn. It's a communion hymn. It's not in Wesley's little book of communion hymns, but it's a communion hymn nonetheless. And it's a really, it's a wonderful hymn about, you know, as I see the bleeding sacrifice... Now, Wesley and us Presbyterians maybe have a little different view of the sacraments maybe than the, the Baptists. I don't know. It depends where you're at with that. But, um, you know, we, we really believe that Christ comes and meets us and we feed on him by faith in the sacrament, that it's not just a memorial. Um, and so for Wesley, he's saying here is the bleeding sacrifice, the gospel in a picture, in the elements before us. But the, the hymn is a cry to say, Lord, let me believe that. Let me feel that. Let me experience that. How should my soul respond to the bleeding sacrifice, to the surety, the assurance that that um, sacrament should bring? And, and, and so you just find this in the hymns all over the place. It's not just dry, dusty theology. It's lived theology. It's in the crucible of life and particularly suffering. And people, they want to know that. They really feel like they need mentors who will help them understand how do you follow Christ in the midst of suffering? And, it's, and it was, I think a lot of people have not seen that or heard that from their baby boomer parents. Uh, but in the hymns, they have wonderful resources for that. Um, I think as well, postmoderns despise a watered-down, contentless gospel. And so the hymns really stretch us. I, I had the experience right before I left the staff at Christ Community of training the elders and the deacons. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church, those are two different groups. And generally, the deacons... In, in the Presbyterian Church, deal more with um, service kinds of things, taking care of the building, ministry to the poor, and the budget, those sorts of things. And the elders um, do more spiritual oversight work. Okay, and generally the way where there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to be this way, but generally the, the elders are a little older than the deacons. It just happens to, to be that way. Um, even though we try to give the impression that deacons is not sort of a step up to being an elder because they really are different callings, different gifts. But nonetheless, it's often that way. So I had this experience of going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, this doctrinal, rich doctrinal statement with deacon and elder candidates together, which really are like guys in their 50s and guys in their early, late 20s, early 30s, the deacon candidates. And it was fascinating to me how the deacon guys who really aren't 
necessarily to be the ones who are as interested in right doctrine. That's more the elders calling. But the, the younger guys were more interested in really digging into what is the confession of faith saying? What do we really believe? I think there is a generational difference. I think young people, particularly those who have been raised in a mass marketed society, are very sensitive to things that are just sort of shoved down their throat that they don't understand. I think that's actually a good thing. I think the Bible would commend that. You know, the Bereans were more noble than any other believers because they examined, you know, Paul's words every day with the scriptures, see if they were true, right? We read about in the book of Acts. So this is a good thing. And yet I'm finding that my that younger people seem to be a little more interested in that. You've probably seen that in the students at the seminary, I would think, here over the years. Um, young people are saying, look, I don't, I don't want, you know, I want to know a theology that will help me pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And, yeah, yeah, right. And, and it's, you know, what do we sing at funerals? Hymns. Where, where's the theology? You know, John Whitfleet has this wonderful chapter um, in his book, Worship, Seeking Understanding, which, do you, do you make him read that book? Yeah, that's good. Where he talks about how common worship um, prepares us for our encounter with death. See, my, my young people love that. That's what they want to know. What's the point of Christianity if it doesn't prepare me for an encounter with death? Right? I'm not interested in how to have a happy marriage. Nothing against having a happy marriage, but gosh, there's so much more to life than following Jesus than that. So there was a, definitely a reaction against sort of, you know, the gospel just used as a means to an end to have the life that I wanted anyway versus a gospel that comes in and completely turns upside down your life. And the hymns, I think, speak more about that gospel that changes everything. And... Um, so I think that there was some time. People were ready for that. I, I put a quote down here. You can, you can read it later. This is going to be up on the website as well. So let me move on. Hymns are theology on fire. We need solid theology rather than a constant diet of fluffs and fads. And they're a great way to wrestle with theology because they connect theology to life and worship rather than allowing theology to just puff us up. Um, I, I find a lot of my students, and this is probably my own experience, have been raised in churches where they're more moralistic, where the emphasis is on what you should do. You should do this, do that, which um, is really shallow in a lot of ways. And yet when they come to Reformed theology, um, for a lot of them, it's a real spiritual reviving experience because they come to see that the gospel is bigger than just the things I do. That It's about what God has done and what Christ has done. But I find sometimes more often than I would like, People get stuck. They, they used to sort of be deriving kind of their reason for living from their own will, trying to do all these things. Now they've come to understand, you know, that it's not about my will. It's about what God has, has willed. Um, it, it reorients them. But now they tend to get stuck in understanding, thinking that, that what's really exciting them is all the new things they've learned. But often I find my students haven't really learned how to feed on Jesus by faith. They went from you know, moralistic, willpower-based religion to now intellectual understanding theology. But it's vital that they learn actually how to feed on Jesus by faith and his beauty. Uh, and, and so I found the hymns helpful for that. They don't allow us to just be content with understanding systematic theology to spit it back on a test. Spit it back on a test. Which Eugene Peterson has some wonderful things to say about the way our modern culture trains us to read, to get answers rather than to read to have a relationship with the author. It affects the way we read the Bible. It affects the way we you know, think about Christianity. And the hymns have helped me bring together the head and the heart. 
And I find a lot of postmodern people are really wrestling with that and want that, and the hymns have been helpful to them. Um, I also think postmodern people are suspicious of the mainstream and anything that's mass-marketed. And the fact that we have not been picked up by a major record company with our CDs has probably been helpful. The, the first people to pick up on our CDs were grassroots music. Um, they ripped us off a bunch of money, so I don't recommend you go to grassroots music anymore. That's fine. They're, um, but, they, they, uh, but they're the ones who kind of, you know, we were associated with all these independent artists because that's the people that have been involved with the CDs. And I think that that's, that's been an, an attractive thing to give some people um, wanted to kind of explore this thing that seems sort of out of the mainstream. Now, this past year, CCM Magazine, right, Contemporary Christian Music Magazine, um, had a cover story where they said, um, hymns, the new modern worship, question mark. Um, one of the editors at Worship Leader told me that there were some 90 hymn CDs released last year. Um, so maybe it's becoming popular, and who knows, will that popularity destroy it? I, I hope not. Um, if you've ever seen this PBS documentary called The Merchants of Cool, um, if you haven't, you should. It's really interesting about how the media conglomerates manipulate young people through the understanding of what cool is and how they take things that are sort of out of the mainstream and then market them uh, and then kill it. You know, um, I hope that's not going to happen with the hymn movement. But it's really fascinating. I mean, a hymn CD got nominated for a Grammy this year. Do you realize that? Right? Jars of Clay's Redemption Songs um, nominated for a Grammy. Didn't win. That's okay. Didn't think it would win. But it was still interesting, you know, to, to see that and to see the way, you know, more and more mainstream folks are picking up with this. Cademan's called it a couple of the hymns from the Double Grace movement on their worship in the Company of Angel CD. And they have another one on the new CD as well, which I don't think is out yet. Have you heard that one? Came out yesterday? Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So the title, the title track, yeah, the title track was on our Beams of Heaven, but Andy put a new chorus to it. Um, and, and so, anyway, there's there, some of the you know more kind of mainstream Christian artists are picking up on this. A bunch of bunch of great things that have come out in the last year. Um, so that that I think that in, in essence that point is that a lot of younger evangelicals are ready for a change. Thoughts, questions. I'm going to split split this outline you know into two days, so we don't need to just roar through everything. Yeah. No, help overcome that. Yeah, good. All right, the question is about when I was talking about going from moralistic, will-based understanding of Christianity to more an intellectual thing to then how hymns can help get them past just an intellectual faith. Yeah, it's for this reason. Like J.I. Packer says in his introduction to knowing God, that the way to take things we know about God um, and connect them to the heart is to meditate on them and to... Um, turn them into sort of the, the basis for praying to God and praising God is really, you know, kind of the time-honored Christian way of taking things we know and getting them into our heart. Um, now, that, that presupposes you understand Christian meditation is not emptying your mind. It's thinking, Tim Keller puts it well, he says it's thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. It's thinking it in and then thinking out the implications, right? The hymns really are examples in, in so many ways of meditation, um, on, on different scriptural texts, often mysteries and ideas, and sort of looking at them and, and thinking about, you know, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's not just a sort of an intellectual understanding of union with Christ um, and the atonement. It really is an experiential meditation on it. And so it, it, to sing that um, actually gives you even words to say that are helping you learn how to meditate and helping you also, it's modeling for you that it's not enough that I just know the truth. 
um, I really should feel the truth, that my heart should be captured by the truth. As Wesley, you know, he writes another hymn, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, not just for a head to understand, right? So the hymns are very concerned with that, probably because they're poets and artists who tend to be um, not content with just understanding things in the head. And I think it's a good corrective for one of the ways that modernism reduced Christianity in, in a lot of ways to either the will or the head. And often you see those two groups pitted against each other. But in the hymn tradition, you actually have those things come together. And you do have a, the will as well. But it's not just a naked appeal to the will, which is more like the revivalistic tradition, you know, where, you know, your commitment to Jesus is all that, you know, you just want to commit to Jesus. But the hymn tradition understands that, that your will flows out of your understanding of what's beautiful. So it's very much connected with understanding the truth, but connecting it to your heart and transformation in a more holistic way. So I think, it, you know, the hymns both model sort of a, a, a more connected head and heart kind of Christianity for us. And I think they help even lead us by the hand how we can do that. And I think through the experience of worship, the head and the heart should come together. And then it should affect the will as well. So, yeah. Other questions or thoughts? Press on. Um, maybe some exploring. I didn't really know how to break this up. You know, some, some ways my subheadings are artificial. But here's, here's the next point, just because we needed a next point. Exploring some possible reasons why hymns are resonating with many today. Um, a few things. Postmodern people love mystery. Young people love mystery. I will tell you, when I first started doing campus ministry back in the late 80s, and I would talk to students about predestination, I would often resort to explaining in the Bible there is surely, surely taught God's sovereignty, but also clearly taught human responsibility. And there is a certain tension. You're not going to find the perfect verse that's going to fully explain to you how those two things fit together. Okay, um, if you're a hyper Calvinist, sorry, we, we differ in this point. Um, and so, you know, I, when I would explain that to students 20 years ago, that was very frustrating to them. They would they would go away from that and say, but I still want to know, is God sovereign or is man free? And I would say, yes, um, from the Bible's perspective, you're responsible. I, I, I usually don't use the word free will because it has all kinds of bad, loaded connotations. Um, but I'm telling you, lately, if you will talk to students today and, and explain something as a mystery or as a tension, they're very happy with that. They say, oh, OK, if it's mysterious, then it's probably true. There's definitely a shift. Yeah, there's, there's really a shift from, you know, now some evangelists say that's a shift towards part, Bart, you know, Karl Barth and neo-orthodoxy. Um, and maybe there is some of that. Maybe there was something right about about some of this. But anyway, the idea um, postmoderns are much more comfortable with mystery and with unanswered questions. And I think the hymn writers, especially the hymns that, have, that we've been using, really love to ask questions um, that just sort of can't even really fully be answered. Um, you know, why would you die for me, Lord? I mean, does the Bible give you a fully sufficient answer for that? No. It hints at, at possibilities, but I don't think you'll ever, even in heaven, I don't think you'll fully understand the love of God. I think all eternity you'll be learning new, um, new beauties of, of, of God's love in Christ. Um, and so there, there, I, I think that that's one of the reasons hymns have really connected with people, because they love mystery. Uh, and the hymn writers love to sit in these paradoxical kinds of statements. 
Um, I, I, I like to describe the hymns as many meditations, many meditations on the paradoxes of the gospel that drive us to worship. I think of one like um, Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages, has another hymn. O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Now, the, the hymn writers love those paradoxical statements. The judge of all has suffered death. Or Ann Steele talks about... Um, the Lord of life expires, um, which I actually put her verse with Topley's verse and made one hymn. But they're actually two different verses. Uh, but that's the Lord of life expires. How does the Lord of life expire? So that's an oxymoron. Um, and, and some of the hymn writers really love, love to do that. I ran across a quote by Spurgeon, who I imagine is always welcome to be quoted at this place. Um, And he says this, when I can't understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God had set a chair there for me at which to kneel and worship. That the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. A lot of people don't know this, but, you know, the Reformed tradition at times has recognized this well, at other times less well. But Calvin's favorite verse, and one he resorts to time and time again, is Deuteronomy 29.29, which says, Now what has been revealed belongs to us, but what is secret belongs to the Lord. And there are, there are places in Calvin's Institutes, for instance, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, where he says, I can't really explain to you, but at times I felt like I've been taken up into the third heaven. And if you ask me to explain it, I can't. Now, people don't think of Calvin that way because they've never read Calvin. They think of him as a guy who's trying to figure out everything and explain it exhaustively. No. The Reformed tradition needs to, I think the hymns can actually remind a lot of Reformed people that we don't have it all figured out. Uh, and that yet we should still sort of be you know, caught up in wonder, love, and praise as we gaze upon these things. Um, the hymns are an opportunity to sit in a mystery. And I think that's a helpful thing in our mass sort of you know, high-speed microwave culture. We don't like to sit in things um, for a while and ponder but, but we need to, to sit in a mystery like, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me until it begins to enter your heart is so important. Um, another, another thing, another reason I think that hymns are, are resonating with a lot of postmoderns is that hymns engage the whole person by offering a more full emotional range of expression than most modern choruses. And again, this surprises people when I say this, but I think a careful study of modern praise choruses um, and hymns will bear this out that, like the Psalms, the hymns cover more emotional ground, a, a wider range emotionally. Dan Allender, who, uh, whose work I greatly respect, Christian counselor, said that if Christians sang more Psalms, we'd have a whole lot less need of Christian counseling. And I think the, the hymns echo the Psalms more than a lot of praise choruses. Uh, in that they, they, they cover the full range emotionally of things. Um, I, I remember growing up singing, you know, what I thought was a psalm. And then, you know, later reading in the Bible and finding, well, that was just two verses from this psalm. <laughs> but the, the, the psalm, like, started here and went here and down here and ended up here. And we just sang this, you know, two verses here. The hymns tend to follow that, that trajectory. Some of them, you know, develop along Trinitarian lines. Some of the hymns de- develop more along sort of experiential lines, how this truth, uh, experience, I experience it, I praise God for it, but then sometimes I really doubt it, but then, you know, I cry out to God to help me really believe it. There's lots of different ways, but the hymns tend to take you on an emotional journey. It's really helpful. And the f- interesting thing to me is that, that people who lead in the praise and chorus style 
tend to do this anyway. It, it, you know, and they'll put together choruses that will take you on a journey emotionally. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. But my sense is that there's not enough resources to have as interesting journey as you can have with the hymns. And it's getting better, I think. But there's still sort of a, a real shortage of choruses that deal with real doubt, um, real suffering in the midst of the gospel in that. And, and uh, again, it's why we sing hymns at funerals um, generally, because those, those texts have seem, seem to have the weight that we want at those times. I put a quote on here for you about um, from Calvin, from his commentary on the Psalms. Listen to this and think about praise choruses versus hymns along this line. Um, He says, I've been accustomed to call this book, the Psalter, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which one can be conscious, conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And they call or rather draw each of us of which one can be conscious that is not sorry. And they call or rather draw each of us to the examination of ourselves in particular, so that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and the vices with which we abound may remain concealed. What he's saying is sometimes I don't even know what I'm feeling or how I'm sinning until I sing the Psalms. That it sort of helps me even connect with what's really going on in my heart. I think hymns should do that. I think what the songs we sing in, in worship should do that. They should, they should help draw us out and give us language to say things that we're not even sure um, that, that we're feeling at the moment. Um, I think the hymns, I, I mentioned this earlier, that the hymns tend to do a better job than a lot of other, a lot of other songs we have in a, engaging your mind, your heart, your will um, together. Um, a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of modern choruses and a lot of the gospel songs tend to focus more on, Lord, I just want to do this, right? Uh, they're, they're about the will, and there's a place for the will, um, but a constant diet of, I want to do this, I want to do that, without hearing God saying, I will do this, I will do that, um, I think leads to a really shallow faith. Uh, I'm convinced, you know, from the Bible, Galatians 3 and 4, that the gospel is a promise agreement, not a law agreement. The heart of the gospel is that God promises to do things. It, if I tell Chip, you know, hey, if you, um, if you come, come down to my house and rake my leaves, I'll pay you a million dollars. He might drive down there and do that. And, and that might seem like grace because it seems like a huge overpayment for the work he would do. But it's a fundamentally different arrangement than if I say, Chip, I'm going to give you a million dollars. The one is a law agreement. The first one. He has to do something. To get the money. But the gospel, Paul says, is not that. The gospel is a promise. Peter describes that way, right, in Acts chapter 2. It's baptism. It's a promise. Um, And that's very important. And so in the hymns, we don't just sing, I want to do this, I want to do that. There's a place for that. But the context is God who has promised to do this and who has made and kept his promises. Paul says at the beginning of uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it is, as many promises as God has made, they are all yea and amen in Christ. And we celebrate that. That's at the heart of worship. It's at the heart of why we can come into worship. Um, one more point, and then, uh, then we'll, I'll break. And if there's maybe five minutes more for questions, and then we'll pick this up again tomorrow. The, the range of metaphors in the hymns. This is really fascinating to me. I read a book um, called The Moral Imagination of the Reformation. And um, this guy, Peter Matheson, I think is his name, 
His point in that book is the best way to understand the Reformation. You may disagree with this, but I still found it really interesting. The best way to understand what happened at the Reformation is that when people like Luther and Calvin went back and actually read the Bible through grammatico, historico, exegesis, and, and began to actually see what the text is actually saying, then what you see after that is in the popular um, literature, the wood cuttings, the sermons, the songs, an explosion of metaphors. That in other words, you know, the dominant metaphor pre-Reformation had really become Christ as judge. It's in the songs, it's in the passion plays. If you saw the Luther movie, it comes on real, real strong there, um, which is a true metaphor. And it's, it's there in the Bible. It's certainly true. But it's to the exclusion of all these other rich metaphors or names of, of God and the ways he's revealed. Um, and, and what Matheson says is when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. And I find, you know, not to be unkind, but, but I find that the, the range of metaphors used for God in a lot of the modern praise courses that we sing are really very limited. And, and, and cliche, they've become the, the point of cliche because the same ones are used over and over and over again. But I go to the hymns and, and man, there is so much food for thought. I think of Ann Steele in particular. Uh, I'm going to talk about Ann Steele tonight at Clifton Baptist. Um, but one of the things that comes out in her hymns that's so fascinating is the way she starts so many of her hymns with a very almost unusual or creative address to God. I just at random grabbed a few of these. My maker and my king, thou lovely source of true delight. These are all different hymns, and these are all mostly the first lines of hymns. Dear refuge of my weary soul. When was the last time you prayed to God as your dear refuge of your weary soul? Almighty author of my frame. Lord of my life, eternal source of joys divine, great source of boundless power and grace, thou only sovereign of my heart, father of mercies in thy word, come thou desire of all thy saints, dear center of my best desires, on and on and on, right? Each one of those titles is sort of like the beginning of meditation. But, you know, I think that there's something really about that, and the cross as well. There are so many different ways that the cross is talked about. Um, through the hymns that helps me understand another facet of this diamond that's at the heart uh, of the gospel. And so I, I find that that's really helpful, and particularly because we're, people are more interested in aesthetic, aesthetic sensibilities. Not, it's not just the truth, but the truth made beautiful. Um, I think that has uh, importance for the way we preach and the way we counsel, the way we do ministry in, in so many ways. Um, but I think it's important for the songs that we sing as well. That they're stretching us, opening our imagination. Um, now, Bob Coughlin has a helpful way of saying, you know, if, if you sing, you know, um, oh, what would be a good one? Lamb of God, right? We sing Lamb of God all the time. And, and Bob hopefully says, if for you, Lamb of God is like a hypertext, you know, you click on it and it leads you to all this wonderful, rich biblical theology, which it should, great. But for a lot of people, it's just become a cliche phrase that doesn't mean anything anymore. Now, I will just give you this one tip. If, if you're using praise courses, and, and you know, I think there's a lot of good ones, and I think they have a place, certainly. All right? um, the way Spurgeon used to preach, I think, can be helpful in, think, in thinking about how to teach people to sing those kinds of songs. He would often preach you know, like one, one phrase, almost, or a part of a verse. And maybe the verse says, Jesus loves sinners. And his first point would be, what? Jesus loves sinners. And his second point would be, Jesus loves Sinners. And then his third point would be Jesus loves sinners. And so I think you can teach people, you know, to, to, to sing something like the lamb is worthy over and over again and teach them how to meditate 
by emphasizing different aspects and thinking how it connects to other parts of Scripture. We don't generally do that. We generally tend to fall into vain repetition, in my opinion, sometimes. But I think you, you can teach people. I think the hymns kind of do that already. They'll take an idea and they'll develop it and they'll connect it to lots of other places in the Scriptures. Um, and again, I think we're very impoverished, um, modern Christians, in knowing how to do meditation. The hymns have been very helpful. I'll just close with this. When I was in college, that A.W. Tozer book I told you I found, um, he said in there that next to the Bible, the best devotional book you can have is a good hymnal. It took me 15 or 20 years to find out that he was right. Um, but, but I wonder, do we, do we use hymn books as devotionals anymore? Um, I think it's a golden resource for ministering, not just to older people, but to younger people. So what are some good hymn books? Great. I actually, on the very back of this outline, which will be online as well, I have a whole list of them, but I, I brought a couple. Um, one I highly recommended is Charles Spurgeon's Our Own Hymn Book. It's been out of print for a while, um, but it's now been reprinted. You can search, you know, um, pilgrimpub.org. I, the, the folks down in Texas that reprint, reprint all the um, Spurgeon stuff have done this. There's 1,100 texts in here with no music. And he was, you know, a great rare book collector. So he has a lot of obscure hymns that don't, don't appear elsewhere. Another one that I, that I think, I don't know if you know about this one, Philip Schaff, yeah. the great church historian. This is called Christ in Song. Um, amazing. He, has, he draws a lot from medieval hymns in here, um, German reformed hymns, um, not necessarily just the Great Awakening English tradition. And he has great liturgical prayers at the beginning of each section. Um, another one that we've used a lot is Gadsby's hymns. Um, William Gadsby was a particular Baptist. That means he was a Reformed Baptist English guy. And he has a hymn book as well that you can, is being reprinted by some folks out in Montana, I think it is. Um, and again, it's like 10 or 11 bucks. I give those out to students and musicians all the time, those three volumes in particular. Thanks. See you tomorrow.